0: ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geraci, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results the etf store is not affiliated with etf trends and etf database or any of its affiliates etf trends and etf database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by etf trends and etf database of the value of any etf store product or service visit etfstore.com for more information
1: the universe of publicly traded pure play digital transformation and blockchain companies has grown significantly in both size and revenues over the last few years. Access the companies driving blockchain innovation with the VanEck Digital Transformation ETF, ticker DAPP, your link to the blockchain. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including possible loss of principal. And investors should consider the fund's objective, risk, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain a prospectus, call 800-826-2333 or visit vanek.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing.
2: Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And
1: now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, simply a fantastic show this week. Joining me will be none other than Jim Ross, ETF industry legend, pioneer, Many call him the godfather of ETFs. Jim played a critical role in the development and launch of the very first ETF, the Spider S&P 500 ETF, ticker SPY, which actually turns 29 years old this week. It launched back in 1993. Jim was also instrumental in launching a number of the world's uh, other first ETFs, including the Sector Spiders and the Spider Gold Shares, ticker GLD, and really just helping grow the ETF industry overall. And so we're going to look back at the launch of SPY, uh, get a first-hand account from Jim on how all that went down. We'll talk about the current ETF landscape. Uh, we'll peer into the future a little bit. And then I also want to find out uh, what what Jim's up to right now. This will be a real treat hearing from someone who, without question, will always have a prominent place in the ETF history books. Also joining me this week, and you talk about how far the ETF industry has come in 29 years, I'll be joined by Cormac Kenny, founder and CEO of Diamond Standard Trust, who, listen to this, Cormac is attempting to bring a physically backed diamond ETF to market, and the underlying diamonds that would be held by this ETF, these are actually embedded in a transparent resin coin, which contains a wireless chip. And these coins, they're tracked on the Ethereum blockchain. You, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, as you might expect, I have a boatload of questions for Cormick. I'm absolutely fascinated by what he's attempting to uh, accomplish here. And I'll tell you, if he's able to get this done... I believe there's going to be a huge market for a physical diamond ETF. I absolutely think this would be a home run. So uh, look forward to visiting with (laughs) Cormick later in the show. Now, to start this week, I have Tom Leiden on the line with me from California. Of course, Tom is founder and CEO of ETF Trends. We're going to talk. I feel like I need a drum roll here. We're going to talk ARK Invest and Kathy Wood. Let's do that now.
2: Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights.
3: This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes.
1: Tom, thanks for joining me this week. Hey, Nate, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing?
3: I'm good. I can't believe you got the goat of ETFs, Jim Ross, on. Congratulations.
1: I'm so excited about that. It's going to be just a, a tremendous conversation. I've had an opportunity to meet Jim in person. That was several years back. But uh, just hearing him offer a firsthand account of everything that happened in the ETF industry during his time, I think, will be uh, will be just a real treat. Um, okay, so look, before we get to ARK Invest and Kathy Wood, I do uh, want to briefly talk Exchange, the ETF conference. Uh, I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are planning on attending that conference. And we did get this news last week that the dates have changed, right? The conference is now being held April 11th through uh, April 14th, still in Miami. Uh, Do you want to briefly talk about the uh, switch here? Obviously COVID related. I know everyone's uh, a bit fatigued on that whole thing, but you got to put safety first, right? Uh, I'm assuming it was that simple.
3: It was that simple, and, and you know, Nate, I mean, after two years of not getting together, uh, we wanted to make sure that we had the best ETF conference ever and exceed everybody's expectations, so we owed it to the advisors, we owed it to the industry to make the right decisions, we talked to a lot of advisors, we talked to our friends in the ETF space and collectively concluded it was better to give people a few months, and and the hotel was very accommodating. We're all set up for mid-April. It's gonna alleviate some of the current health concerns and you know, avoid travel restrictions. And as you know, we've got a lot of big companies that support the conference as well, and they have travel restrictions in January. They're thinking about travel restrictions in February. Let's gets us all past that. And most importantly, we can get all excited about getting together. I, I realize, we realize, that for some people, this might mess up their plans a bit. I know you personally had some things going on and you were able to rearrange some dates so you can still be there and record ETF Prime from the conference. So we appreciate everybody accommodating the new dates and we're really looking forward to it.
1: And we'll obviously talk more about the conference as we get uh, closer to the date. But for people who aren't yet registered, do you want to offer a quick preview as to everything that you have on the agenda?
3: Well, first of all, if you're listening to ETF Prime on a regular basis, pretty much all the ETF nerds that you have on a regular basis, Nate, are there in in force. Um, In addition, if you're a podcast fan, the folks from uh, Ritholtz and Animal Spirits, you know, Ben Carlson, Michael Batnick will be there, Meb Faber, uh, our friend Eric Balchunas over at uh, Bloomberg will be recording Trillions, uh, Emily Mattingly. We'll do Minority Money podcasts. We've got Shayna Sissel, Corey Hofstein, Tina Powell, Caitlin Cook, the Chicks of Fintwit podcast will be there. And speaking of Fintwit, we've got an ETF Fintwit 50 group that we've put together that's gonna be there in full force. You're a big social media fan. You're on Fintwit all the time, Nate. I know you've made friends in the last couple of years that you've never met in person, and you're gonna have a chance to see a lot of those folks there as well. So uh, we've got Barry Ritholtz, who's going to be uh, interviewing Michael Strahan one-on-one. Michael Saylor going to be there talking crypto. Obviously, Kathy Wood uh, talked to her on Friday. She's there in force. Sam Hinkey, Pippa Malgren, you know, Pippa Malgren. We're we're really going to have just a great setup, and most importantly, there's going to be a lot of social going on, including some social events around South Beach. So. Um, I, I, I'm i a little bummed it's going to take a, a couple more months, but it's going to be worth the wait, Nate.
1: You mentioned the uh, social events around South Beach. It's funny because uh, as I was looking at my schedule and trying to get everything to work out, I looked at the agenda and I saw this Mission Miami, I believe, on that Tuesday night. That caught my attention. What, what is that, a little uh, bar hop, little bar hopping down on South Beach?
3: We do. We've got a, a, a handful of excursions, and uh, for those that want to get off campus a bit, but there's going to be plenty on campus too. And uh, I, I'll tell you, we are 100% sold out uh, as far as sponsors, exhibit booths. Uh, we've got 28 cabanas around the pool area that uh, people can pop around and talk to their friends in the industry. Um, it's going, to be some, it's going to be legendary, Nate, and and uh, I'm really glad that you were able to arrange your dates to be able to make it, and uh, this is going to be one of those things that we're going to be talking about for a long time.
1: No, I'm thrilled to be able to go down there, and again, as you mentioned, Dave Nottig and I will be recording this podcast live from Exchange. That'll be on April 13th, so to everyone listening, if you are down in Miami, we'd love to have everyone join us. It'll be a live audience. Uh, you'll be able to listen in. That, that should be a lot of fun. All right, Tom, let's uh, move on and talk probably the big topic right now. It's been the big topic for the past couple of years, ARK Invest and Kathy Wood. And I thought I'd start by offering a, a few numbers here. I pulled these yesterday. So since hitting all-time highs in February of last year, the ARK Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK, that's down nearly 50%, which that compares to the S&P 500 up about 20% over that same time period. Now, if you look at some of the other uh, popular ARK ETFs, they're all in the same boat. ARKG, ARKW, ARKF, all down somewhere between 40 50% plus. Now, I, I think to be fair, uh, and this is important, Several of these ETFs are still trouncing the S&P 500 since their inception, in particular ARKK and ARKW. I think we need to point that out uh, just so that doesn't get lost in, in the shuffle here. But recently it has been tough sledding. And we do know a lot of investors piled into these ETFs in late 2020, early last year, and certainly they've had an unpleasant experience. Um, I, I want to give you one other stat, and then I'll pause here because I want to uh, get your thoughts. But if you look at ARC's U.S. ETF assets, they're now at about $25 billion. That's down from a peak of over $60 billion earlier last year. And, of course, a lot of that has been performance-driven, right? But there has been a, a an uptick in outflows more recently it's not just a flood of assets leaving the funds but there's certainly a a trickle or something a little bit more than that what do you make of all this right right now as you look at the arc story
3: well well the great thing nate um as you know um i i sat down and had a long conversation and interview with kathy wood on friday um, specifically talking about this. Uh, you know, we did it with the idea that we were going to talk frankly. So all your statistics are correct, but also it's important to point out if you're down 50% in assets and you're at 26, that rounds up to $52 billion. The point is, a lot of the shareholders, the vast majority of the shareholders that have been in there for this ride, are, are hanging tough and, and that's important to know. If you look back at other periods of time when there were hot dot, uh, whether it be mutual funds or ETFs out there, there were a lot of traders involved. I think most of the people, and this is where Kathy feels very, very um, thankful. Most of the people are listening to the message that, look, this is a long-term commitment, at least a five-year outlook and they've been very, very clear about that. The big question is, and what I asked her is, um, are you still committed to this strategy? Are you co- still committed to the underlying stocks? You know, uh, companies like Zoom, for example, that did very, very well during COVID, um, is, is that whole thing going to change? And she went through a lot of the companies, you know, not only companies like Tel- Tesla that she was early on, but also companies like Zoom that look, I don't know you, about you, Nate, but I'm not traveling as much, even when COVID lifts, because I can get so much done via Zoom. And when I talk to friends in the industry, they feel the same way. If we're going to travel, it's going to be because you want to get together with friends in the industry for dinner. People aren't really meeting in offices that much anymore. Companies like Teladoc, where uh, if I don't have to go to a crowded doctor's office and wait a half hour and then get in the waiting room and then wait another half hour, and I can just sign on at a specific time, talk to the doctor for 15 minutes, get something done. That's good for me. And I think most people are leaning in that area. She talked about genome sequencing. Two years into COVID, we're now that much closer when you get your annual checkup, you're going to be able to check a box and actually have a gene sequence done for a very small amount of money. And if you happen to have cancer or diabetes in your family, check to see where you stand in that regard. So there are a lot of cool things that are there. Her conviction has not changed. I said, well, it feels like 1999. What do you say? She said, it's nothing like 1999. These are real companies, real growth patterns, real earnings. And then I said, well, what about rising rates? You know, a lot of people are saying, hey, you know, we're we're seeing rising rates. We now today with with the 10-year the at 1.8, isn't that concerning? She said, there are a lot of periods of time when we've seen growth stocks do really well in rising rate environment. And you really think about the premise there. It's like, so if you're borrowing money, and even if rates are up 1%, but you've got a 30% growth rate, is that really going to affect the growth of the business? You know, probably not. So um, I think, Nate, the big point here is you and I are advisors. It comes down to allocation. And if you had a 5% allocation in ARKK, And you happen to be unfortunate and buy it at the high in February, but you believed in the five-year plan, and you're down 50%, and you're a responsible advisor, and your clients like the idea that you're thinking about where the next fang stock's coming from, it's going to be probably from these types of strategies. So what do you do? Uh, You don't sell you probably average up during that period of time. And I think we're going to see more and more advisors, especially, do just that.
1: One thing I'm curious about in your conversation with her, is she aware of some of the negative media coverage out there? And, you know, we now have uh, inverse ARC products out there, and I'm not saying those are negative. We, I've, I've had uh, Matt Tuttle on the show before when we talked about that. But, you know, if you're somebody like Kathy Wood and you now see products out there that are betting against your active management uh, prowess, uh, I, I just wonder how she views that. And of course, I think ARC has had a tremendous marketing machine in the past, and that works both ways, right? When things are going really well, you get a lot of positive media attention. When things aren't going so well, you get some negative coverage. But I'm curious, did you get any sense as to her, her sentiment on that right now and the negative media coverage out there currently?
3: So the, the funny thing is she's not against it. She appreciates a good marketing opportunity, and, and they've done a good job there. Uh, does it have a negative effect on the perception of ARC, it, it's a trade. So the, there's some out there that are going to be short term traders, and obviously the people in the negative ARC ETF are not there for a five year period of time. It's going to be interesting to see in the next 12 to 24 months what the assets look like there. But look, ETFs are innovative, and we're going to continue to see those types of um, real specific opportunities out there. She kind of, um, I'm not going to say giggles, but I think she nodded to the fact that there was a marketing opportunity. Great. Does it have a negative effect overall on the ARC business and the ARC brand? I i don't think she thinks so.
1: Well, I shot out a tweet on this last week you may have seen. You know, look, Kathy and ARC Invest, I think they like to have a little bit of fun. Do you remember this uh, bad ideas video that came out, I believe, in October of 2020?
3: Yeah, that was fun. Well, yeah.
1: And, you know, I, since that time in my tweet, I, I crunched the numbers. The S&P 500 is up 35 percent and ARKK is down 21 percent. So that that hasn't gone well in terms of timing. And, and actually, for people who miss this, let me uh, let me play this real quick.
4: Are you an investor looking for long-term capital appreciation, but worried about the short-term volatility associated with innovative companies? Well, you're not alone. Many investors appear to be afraid of companies that offer newer, faster, cheaper, and creative products and services. Now you can avoid these innovative companies. How? Ask your advisor today if investing in a traditional broad-based index is right for you. A broad-based index provides investors with a feeling of safety and comfort, knowing that they hold past success, often based on tangible assets like a bank branch, railroad, or real estate. Indices should generate predictable cash flows because, hey, that's historically been the case. And things never change. Side effects may include, but are not limited to, owning companies associated with the traditional world order. Investors holding stocks associated with traditional transportation, banking, bricks, and mortar retail, and linear TV may experience headache, nausea, and increased blood pressure due to the accelerating threat of disruptive innovation. Your investment portfolio doesn't need to be bothered by a changing world. This parody was brought to you by ARK Invest. To learn more, download Bad Ideas at ArkInvest.com/BadIdeas.
1: So I got a uh, a kick out of that video when it came out, and look, you know, I like Ark's uh, marketing as I was saying before. I I I don't think anyone's doing it better in asset management. Now, I will say. Where they may have gone wrong in that video was comparing ARC ETFs to traditional broad based index funds, because I think most investors view ARK ETFs as uh, thematic satellite holdings, right? And so comparing them to the SP or, or whatever, I think was the wrong message. But my, my question to you is do you think that video was like a bad mojo, you, you know, ARK taunting the investment gods and the uh, investment gods didn't like that so much? What did you think of that video when it came out and what, what do you think of it now? What do you think of it now?
3: Yeah. Are you saying it's kind of like being on the cover of Sports Illustrated? It just it wasn't I lucky? <laughs> well, well, look, I, I think the point was not avoid the S&P, but um, in, their, in their humorous way, they're trying to say there's something else. I mean, Nate, you and I know the amount of money that's tracking or highly correlated to the S&P is huge, and the S&P has done fantastically well. But there are concerns among advisors about valuation and the high concentration of a few stocks. Uh, I think what their marketing department was trying to do is say, uh, look, look outside from time to time, and that's really the message there. Look, you and I both love humor, and if we can uh, do a little bit of tongue-in-cheek through a parody and just get advisors and individual investors thinking a little bit outside the box, great. Was that timing (laughs) perfect? No, no, it wasn't. And will that come back to bite them? Probably not, but we will they'll laugh just the way you and I will laugh about it.
1: Well, I, I think the main message here, you mentioned uh, Barry Ritholtz earlier. He had a, a good tweet last week where I'm going to paraphrase. He said, look, ARC is high active share. They're, they're a high volatility fund. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do, right? They're owning the hottest growth names. And as an investor... You have to know that. You have to understand that. If you see an ETF up 150 percent one year, guess what? It can go down 50 percent. That, that's that's normal in investing. And I think going back to, to what I was alluding to before, I think most investors are using ARK ETFs as satellite holdings in a portfolio. They already have the core spoken for. A lot of them are using uh, low-cost beta to, to to get that exposure. And then around the edges, they're having some fun, and, and they're looking for a little juice with ETFs like ARK. I, I don't think there's much more to it than that. And uh, again, I think ARK's done a, a fantastic job in marketing. They're, you know I, I will say that... I think moving forward, and I said this a a few weeks ago, I I feel like this year could somewhat set ARC's legacy. And the way I would lay this out is I feel like if they do underperform significantly again, people may view them as a one-hit wonder. And I'm not saying that's fair, but perception is a big part of investing and marketing, and that could be a bit of a challenge for them. On the other hand, if they knock the cover off the ball— then I think that gives them a lot of momentum moving forward, and they can say, "See, our investment process works; it's repeatable." And I do think Ark and Kathy would resonate with a lot of people, so that could really springboard them again. Uh, I, I think it's going to be interesting to watch.
3: So, so if you think disruptive technology should be judged in a you know a twelve or twenty four month period of time, I, I agree. I, I think just the way technology is such a part of our lives these days that it's gonna be something that we're gonna allocate not just for two years or five years or 10 years, but but for decades. Um, you, you know, when you think about allocations to areas like value stocks or even commodities, coming out of the financial crisis, you know, Nate, that 10-year period of time was ugly, just really, really bad. However, people aren't saying, let's avoid value or let's avoid commodities because they both have come on strong lately. I think to her point, and she she mentions this, volatility is not a bad thing. Volatility is something that you should embrace. And as long as you're using it in the right way with your portfolio construction, it's great. I mean, we spend so much time talking about hot dots like ARC or cryptocurrency or this and that. The big value that hopefully you and I provide is not only identifying those opportunities, but the right allocation in the portfolio at the right time. And that's really where the magic sauce is, right?
1: No, 100 percent comes down to position sizing, something like that, and, and rebalancing if it runs up or, or goes the other direction. Um, Tom, just a, a minute or two left here. I'm not sure if you saw this over the weekend, but the uh, Wall Street Journal's Jason Zweig had what I thought was a really interesting article. And uh, I, l- actually, let me read this, uh, this quote from Jason. He said, uh, quote, What's happened at ARK is a counterblast to the belief that ETFs are superior in every way to mutual funds. And his point was that ETFs can't close to investors. So if you have a bunch of money coming into an ETF, they can't just shut the doors like a mutual fund can. And he was suggesting this became a problem for art that they had all this success and all this money came in. They had to put that to work. But at the end of the day, there are only so many good investment ideas out there. My, my question to you, and this is probably a good segue to my conversation with Jim Ross, just talking about the future of ETFs. But do you see this as a shortcoming of the ETF wrapper and something that might give other active managers pause in using ETFs moving forward?
3: So I I talked to Kathy about this specifically on Friday, right after it came out. Um, And I said, I asked her, I said, specifically, is, you know, uh, is this a a flaw in ETFs? And she said, you know, absolutely not. I mean, here's the thing. If uh, you have a run-up in a certain strategy and you're, you're a mutual fund, do you know exactly when the right time to close is? And who's actually done that correctly over time? So that's a a bit of a fallacy. The other thing is, although she has high conviction in certain stocks, she's always making sure that they are single-digit ownership and uh, single-digit allocation within the portfolio. So there's always enough diversification there. But the the idea that um, I think we need to highlight is there's a whole segment of the marketplace that had a huge run-up in 2020 up until the high in February of of last year. And it wasn't just the stocks that Kathy Wood had. There there still are uh, over 50% of the NASDAQ 100 stocks that are down 40% as we speak. So it was a major area of the marketplace that was negatively affected. And that's one of the things we have to take into account. We can't necessarily, or should we necessarily, control the opening and closing of flows coming in and out. And if you do the right thing in understanding the underlying strategy and where that fits in the portfolio, you have to live and die by the sword. So if there are high conviction strategies out there that may have greater volatility, make sure that works into your portfolio. But ultimately, the favorable tax treatment that you receive in ETFs, you just can't beat it.
1: Yeah, my simple take on this is, is it a a minor limitation of ETFs? Certainly, they, they don't have the ability to close. Um, but I would question how many mutual funds, to, to what you were saying, actually close when they're supposed to. I'm guessing a lot of mutual f- uh, fund managers keep letting those assets come in the door and they'll keep dinging management fees. I, I'm just skeptical of how many mutual funds actually close w- when they should. But uh, in any event, Tom, excellent stuff as always. Lo- love this conversation around ARC. Thank you for joining me this week. Great seeing you, Nate. Thanks. That was Tom Leiden, founder and CEO of ETF Trends.
2: With yields at historic lows, investors will need to seek alternatives to the traditional approaches. That's where the NASDAQ Dorsey Wright target distribution approach can help. Using a broadly diversified allocation to U.S. equities, bonds, and non traditional investments, the strategy targets a consistent 7% annualized distribution while preserving principal and without reaching for yield. Learn more at strategysharesetfs.com.
1: My next guest is Jim Ross, ETF industry legend, pioneer, often referred to as the godfather of ETFs. Jim was instrumental in bringing the very first U.S. listed ETF to market, the Spider S&P 500 ETF, ticker SPY. That was in 1993. And from there, Jim played a critical role in building out and guiding and growing the State Street Spider ETF business. You know, you think about some of the innovations along the way, things like the Sector Spider ETFs, the Spider Gold Trust, ticker GLD, or even some of the first ETFs in other countries around the world. Jim was involved in all of that. And no surprise, Jim received ETF.com's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016, among a number of other industry awards. And he's now on the line with me from Hilton Head, South Carolina. Jim, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time.
5: Well, Nate, thank you this morning. Thanks for having me on this morning. We're looking forward to this conversation. should be
1: fun. All right, so nearly 28 years at State Street, obviously heavily involved in the ETF space, which we're going to talk about. But I'm curious, what are you doing now? Are you uh, enjoying life? Have you taken up some new, some new hobbies here? Uh, well, I'm not sure I've
5: taken up new hobbies. I'm playing a little bit more golf. I call myself semi-retired, but I also, upon my retirement from State Street, became chairman of Fusion Acquisition Corp. Uh, which is a special-purpose acquisition company. Uh, we successfully launched that in June of 2020. Um, always a fun time. And then completed that, completed that first merger with Money Lion in September of 2021, and then we also launched Fusion Acquisition Corp 2. So I'm keeping busy. Uh, nice balance of a little bit of up but keeping myself in the game both from that perspective. I also still remain on a couple of the state-treating CF boards.
1: And with these special purpose acquisition companies, my understanding is is that uh, you're targeting companies involved in fintech and, and wealth technology, asset management. Is that correct?
5: That is correct. So, yeah, we're pretty much in the fintech, wealth tech, insure tech. Uh, we'd, we'd have to do a cross-section of um, looking at different targets that are proc- you know really good private companies that we think would benefit from being you know, in the public market.
1: All right, so let's go back in time. For people who haven't heard this story before, let's go back to 1992, 1993, and your involvement with what would become the first U.S.-listed ETF. Uh, What were you doing at the time? Uh, What did you think about the idea? How did this all come together?
5: So, Nate, as I've said to many people over the years, I get a lot of credit for SPY, and I deserve very little. Um, I joined State Street in just kind of a role in a new business organization, in July of 1992. And long story short, there's a new group, didn't have a lot of work. I came out of public accounting. I was used to working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And probably about two months, in, I looked at my boss's boss. I just said, listen, if anyone has more for me to do, I'm, I'm game. I need more work. But he remembered that. And a month later, he's sitting there, there's a whole bunch of people really working hard on something. I have no idea what they're doing. And they were working on spies. And when we we're getting to push come to shove, this is now November, he says, Jim, you know how to do financial statements, right? I'm like, yeah, I'm a CPA, yeah. He goes, good, we need your help in this project. So I got involved in probably November of 92 and something that launched in January of 93. They'd already done all the hard work. Um, I was deeply involved in the launch of it. I um, mean, everyone's like, Jim, we don't see you in the pictures on the American Stock Exchange floor. I'm like, that's because I was in Quincy, Mass, trying to make sure it worked.
1: Well, talk a little bit bit about the launch. I mean, what was the initial reception to SPY? How did things go from there? You know,
5: it it was new, it was novel, it was
1: really not understood well. Um, So I think, you know, everyone
5: thinks SPY was an instant success. It wasn't. SPY, then you remember, at the end of 2004 was lower than at the end of 2003. Um, And really, it needed to be marketed. It needed to be sold to traders. Remember, SPY was launched as a... Institutional trading product. um it was really kind of founded out of the crash of eighty seven and supposedly going to be helped to be a replacement for portfolio insurance that didn't work during the crash of eighty seven and it did that job, but it really was not an instant success until people started to understand the flexibility and how they could use it and then it just started doubling maybe, and I mean doubling every year five hundred million a billion billion two two four four eight. <laughs>
1: Well, is that when it um, first really crazy. is that when it first really hit you that you actually had something with spy and and maybe even ETFs more broadly speaking? Was that the moment when you started seeing AUM double?
5: Well, we knew we had something with spy, but there was questions about how far you know how how far could you take the structure and would, would it work? You know, I mean, there were some questions. Would it work? You know, mid cap spot had happened. Obviously, we were looking at sector spiders, the Dow Diamonds, but there was no view that it could ever work in fixed income. Forget about international. So the early days were very focused on what we do in the U.S. Um, But one thing you can imagine is, like, the simplicity of the product structure made it. So it was different than mutual funds. It didn't have multiple share classes. Everyone paid the same price. So in my early days, I was like, you know what? This is, from a product perspective, if I'm a buyer, I can pay the same price as all those folks at Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch. It seemed like a good idea to me. But I was also pretty young then, Nate. I think I was 27 when I joined State Street.
1: So
5: <laughs> I was still trying to figure out the whole investing world. Um, and it was very interesting. But just to see Spy and some of its early success, not really knowing that it had broader appeal over time. And that's really where we saw some of the great success coming ETFs.
1: So what were some of the other products that you became involved with as you look into the late 90s, early 2000s? Uh, Talk about some of the yeah, projects so you worked on. So,
5: I mean, from a stage three perspective, obviously, we were deeply involved in launching the Dow Diamonds or the SPY Dow Jones Industrial Average. And then Sector Spiders was, you know, a partnership with Merrill Lynch and the American Stock Exchange. Really a unique approach of taking the ETF structure and really the first attempt to get it into retail hands. Um, when you think about it, it was really distributed through the Merrill Lynch platform, through their FAs. And the product idea was simple take, you know, the sector strategist at the time was very, very well known and take his ideas and implement them through sector spotting. And it worked. It was very successful. I think we raised the first $500 million in that system. Um, and then it had broader appeal over time. And then I started getting involved um, as I transitioned from the State Street side of the house to SSDA in late 99, early 2000. I started getting involved. In 99, I got involved in some of our international development. And helped um, launch the the Tracker Fund of Hong Kong, uh, which was the first ETF in Hong Kong. And that was by far the most complicated thing I've ever worked on. Uh, And by the way, I do not not recommend commuting to Hong Kong for six months, two (laughs) weeks on, two weeks off. Just don't recommend it.
1: Well, Jim, I have to ask you, I mean, as you look at the ETF industry now, over $7 trillion in assets here in the U.S., I feel like growth and momentum around the industry is still accelerating in your wildest dreams. I mean, could you have ever imagined this back in 1993 or even a few years after that, that ETFs would grow into this monster in asset management? Well, so clearly not in
5: 93. Uh, I think we all would have made some different business decisions around that back then. Uh, had we known what you know, kind of what the structure could do? And it really, remember, some of the innovation that we saw in ETFs, like in the use of ETFs, really came from two different things. One, it came from the investors finding different ways to use ETFs to, ch- to, to solve their challenges. And not necessarily someone knocking on the door saying, hey, I think I have a great product for you to buy. But sometimes people just found it. We found early on in SPY, one of the largest holders was an Australian pension funder. No one marketed it to the Australian pension fund and they were buying hold and they just saw this as great access to the U.S., which it is. But at the time, we weren't really thinking of it that way. We were thinking of spies trading product. I think the other thing that people don't really get, one of the drivers of ETFs, and I'm going to go to probably the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, is just some of the macro changes happening in the investment industry. You know, think about commission costs coming down, trading costs coming down, going from, you know, you know quarters is an ace to pennies, uh, and just kind of the whole advent of fee-based investing and financial advisors looking at fee-based versus commissions spy was not well loved by the large brokerage houses when it first came out because it was one commission to get to access to 500 stocks and that was not how they viewed their business so I think you know long you know in, you saw some things happening and you're like okay this has some legs. I then decided to see some international development. I helped also launch the first one in Australia, which is a very, very financial advisor-driven market. Uh, and you decided to see, okay, there's more there. Uh, but once again, there was still early, you know, challenging sledding. Does fixed income really work? Can you really get the, you know, the regulators were welcoming at VTS, but skeptical. Uh, so you had a lot of work to do in Washington. We, I spent a lot of time doing education sessions with the SEC staff with my major competitors, with Vanguard, with BlackRock. Because at that point, it was in all of our best interest to help kind of educate the regulators on what we thought was possible.
1: You mentioned uh, innovation, and there's no question one of the hallmarks of the ETF space has been this uh, just championing innovation. We now have mutual fund ETF conversions. There are Bitcoin futures ETFs. There are all sorts of thematic ETFs. Uh, we, we've seen a bunch of traditional active mutual fund managers now jumping into the space. We have Capital Group uh, coming here pretty soon. There are defined outcome ETFs, uh, options-based strategies. I mean, I, I could go on. What's been your take on ETF innovation, and do you still see areas of, of opportunity? I mean, is there still a white space out there?
5: You know, every time you don't think there is, somebody comes up with something very innovative that works. You know, I think as we see now finally getting, you know, the SEC ETF rule approved, which is very important for a broad set of ETFs, but didn't cover everything. And then even the exemptive relief and needed relief to do non-transparent active. I think some of those things are really important for the industry. And, you know, some people might, oh, your non-transparent active is still new and novel. Well, you know, it's gotten a lot of the, it really has, reached out to the mutual fund players who are still the in naces in some cases and said, here's a structure that you can use that would let you bring your best product. And really, I think of, you know of, the ETF wrapper in some cases is just a different way of distributing your product. And when you look at it that way, it makes complete sense for people to look at how can I bring my product into this ETF space where I can list it and trade it on exchange and advisors who don't want to buy mutual funds anymore might buy my product. And that's really where I see some of that innovation. But there's, there's, I think every time you think there's not another space for people to go, I mean, I'm sure people are looking at, you know, NFT ETF type things. You know, I think there's a balance of innovation and regulatory, you know, requirements that has to be met. You know, I think that's one of the challenges we're seeing in Bitcoin. Do I think a Bitcoin ETF that holds Bitcoin versus holding futures is a better product? I do. That reminds me of. GLD. But the regulators aren't there yet. And I I understand why they're not. I don't want to pick a side of that battle. Um, I understand why they're not. I think there's, you know, desire to have that market more developed. And I get that. We received some of the same questions when we brought GLD to market. We received a lot of those same questions when I worked with the World Gold Council to get GLD through the SEC.
1: Jim, you mentioned the ETF rule. One of the topics I've covered a lot recently is this boom in new ETF entrants. And I think following the 2019 ETF rule, which of course streamlined new launches, and also I think with uh, more white label issuers uh, driving down startup costs and minimizing some of the headaches around launching a new ETF, we have seen a lot more firms enter the space. I'm curious from your perspective. What's the recipe for success here, especially for smaller upstart issuers that perhaps don't have the scale of someone like a State Street?
5: You know, Nate, I'm going to be very truthfully honest. I'm going to give my views. I'm also going to say I never had to do it. <laughs> so, full transparency the folks out there listening to this, I've never had to do it. I do think you really, really need to focus on what are you bringing? Is it unique? Is it differentiated? Is it appealing to the marketplace, or well, at least the niche marketplace you're trying to get to so one you have to really evaluate is it truly differentiated so that if it's not you're gonna get lost and if you really believe it is and you have a you know a low-cost way of bringing it to market you need a plan and then you need a commitment of resources to can get you the first 50 million dollars then get you the second 50 and those are important because that gets you access to a broader suite of investments so Everyone who watches ETF say knows the ETF strategists in the independents have the ability to buy ETFs first, the RA community. And then then once you get it to fifty or hundred million, you have trading volume, then you might be able to get it on some platforms. But if you can't get those first assets, you can have the best idea in the world. You're probably not going to have a successful outcome. And I think that's the biggest challenge is there's so much competition out there. It's such a broad swath of the world today competing for these assets that, you know, it's it's really hard to get, you know, mind space from any investor on something unless it's really differentiated. And you can commit to educate and get the message to those investors.
1: Jim, let's say you do have the best idea in the world and you find some success. I'm curious whether you have any strong views on intellectual property in ETF. So I always talk about how ETFs are the Silicon Valley of asset management, right? The industries we were just speaking uh, to, it's an incubator of new innovative ideas. But I think one of the challenges is that if a smaller entrepreneurial firm hits on one of these ideas, larger firms can come in and basically replicate that idea and offer it to investors at a lower cost. And the ETF entrepreneur who put their blood, sweat and tears into a a product is now potentially in a, a difficult spot. Having been at one of the largest issuers, do you have any issue with this, or is, is it all fair game? Because I'll also say that investing is the ultimate copycat sport, right? A lot of investors try to copy the best ideas to get a better return. So I, I'm curious, how do you view all that?
5: You know, I, again, when, when you think about intellectual property, it's a really complicated area of the world. I mean, I will not forget, Nate, you know, we launched by in 1993. Someone filed and got a patent in 1996 on something. And then said spy violated. I'm like, and I had to go through a deposition for a day and they kept on asking me questions. I kept on saying spy launched in 1993. We were using this in 1993. Like, it didn't matter. Like didn't, but that, that didn't stop somebody from trying to find a way of saying the entire ETF industry owed them royalties. So I get a little bit skeptical of intellectual property, but I also think there is a place for it. I just don't know where it sits. We looked at SPI early on and said we didn't think we had anything we could patent that, but we've seen other folks come in and do it on different parts of the ETF ecosystem. We're trying to. do it. So it's like, it's one of those really complicated areas um, where I don't know what the right answer for it is. I understand the challenges. I understand the challenge. If I'm a new person, once again, we are try and differentiate indexes. I think that's challenging today. Um, you know, you can have a unique index, but you know, indexes can get very closely replicated by another index provider um, at a lower cost easily today. So I think there's, there's not a lot there. I don't know about, like I said, I'm not a IP lawyer by any means. I understand the desire for the protection. I, and once again, I think the, the, days of having the first mover advantage with some of the, you know, somebody bigger come in and do it, you know, frankly, at lower cost is always going to be a challenge. And you have to really think about what's your moat there. Do you have a moat? Do you have something that is defensible if somebody comes in and says, I can do this for half?
1: Jim, just a couple minutes left here, putting intellectual property aside. Obviously, you're a champion of ETFs. You're an ambassador for ETFs. Um, what, what do you see is the biggest challenge for the industry moving forward? Like if you were to look at the space with a critical eye and, and maybe put your ambassador hat aside for a moment, is there anything that gives you pause right now?
5: You know, it's the same thing that's given you pause for a very long time, Nate. It hasn't changed. Complexity. The complexity of the product can lead to investor confusion. And I think that's really when I think of ETFs. I mean, I go back to the days when it was simple. You had equity ETF, maybe some fixed income, some international. We didn't have leverage. We didn't have inverse. And not that those aren't good products. They do exactly what the shareholders do. But they made the world more complex. And obviously, I'm going back to those. And that's two thousand eight, nine. Forget about today. Like there's just so many products. So I think the, the 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 biggest challenge is the ETFs have been successful. Um and that success has led to complexity of new products and potentially investor confusion. Now, my personal opinion is investors need to do their own due diligence here. They need to be the ones to understand what the ETF owns how that potential investment fits into the overall investment strategy and does it make sense for them to buy it. But that – some investors are just going to look and say, oh, there's too many of them. I can't figure it out. But so I think that's one of the – that's my biggest macro challenges. I think micro, you know, regulatory – yeah, sure. Do you worry about, you know you – yeah, know, I think we've done a great job, you know, finding resiliency in, the, new, in the, the stock exchange in the U.S., but there's always a potential risk there. So, But I think the biggest challenge is just the overall – you know amount of product out there and the complexity of trying to make sure the investor understands
1: No, I think that's well said. I think certainly with more complex products coming to market, education's always going to be critical and that has to come from uh, 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 It has to be a multifaceted approach. It has to come from ETF issuers. It has to come from the regulators. It has to come from all aspects of the industry. But, uh, Jim, I think you and I could talk for a a couple hours. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Congratulations on just a storied ETF career. Uh, Really glad to hear you're enjoying everything now and uh, certainly wish you the best moving forward. Thank you for joining me.
5: Great, Nick. Really enjoyed it. Have a great day.
1: That was ETF industry legend Jim Ross.
0: This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest. iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainably related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of the progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risk, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC.
1: I'm now joined by Cormac Kinney, founder and CEO of Diamond Standard Trust, who among other things, which we'll discuss, they're attempting to build a foundation in order to bring a physically backed diamond ETF to market. Uh, This is something the ETF industry has kicked around for a while. Nobody's been able to figure it out, but Cormac is someone uh, who's founded six software startups, including four that were acquired by public companies. He has innovation cited in nearly 4,000 U.S. patents. He actually invented heat maps, believe it or not, and he's now on the line with me from New York. Cormac, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nate. Great to be here with you. All right, so I've got to tell you, I am absolutely fascinated by everything you're doing. And uh, for listeners, I would highly encourage you to go to diamondstandard.co and just poke around and and look at these diamond coins. I I think they're a sight to behold. I can't do them justice just talking about them on the podcast. You've got to see them. Uh, But Cormac, let's start from the beginning and then we'll get into the uh, ETF efforts. Just give us a quick backstory on why you started Diamond Standard and, and exactly what you're building here.
6: Well, my background is is computer science, and um, I spent many years building trading systems. And I ran a company called NeoVision, where I designed over 100 trading systems, and that company was eventually acquired by the Carlisle Group. And after that, I I spent six years as a quantitative portfolio manager, and I ran U.S. equities for Tudor Investment Corp. and Millennium. But during that time, over the last 20 years, my wife... Uh, My wife has taught me about diamonds, and she's a a famous jewelry designer based here in New York, named Mimi So. And what I learned about diamonds is that it's an incredible $1.2 trillion asset class. However, investors could never leverage diamonds as an asset because every diamond's different. There's no price transparency. There's no liquidity. The friction to trade diamonds is immense. And for an ETF, the problem is you could never mark a diamond to market. And without that simple fundamental pricing mechanism, you could never launch an ETF. And what I became interested in was using my background in computer science and trading systems to invent the world's first fungible diamond commodity, and that's the diamond standard coin.
1: And so those coins, I want to make sure I have this right. So th- these are encased in transparent resin. I believe there's 8 to 10 diamonds each. Uh, there's military-grade wireless encryption uh, chip that, that's in this as well. The chip stores a digital token, which allows users to instantly authenticate, audit, and trade the coin electronically on the blockchain, by the way. You can also track the tokens physically. My understanding is the width of these is eh, about the, the size of a half dollar. Um Talk more just about those coins themselves. And then I'm very curious about the blockchain element here.
6: Yeah. So the breakthrough is that we can prove that every coin is equivalent. And you're right. They contain diamonds, and it's, it's eight to nine diamonds. But those diamonds always add up to an a identical market value based on the geology in each coin. So the computer science breakthrough is how do we achieve that? And it's interesting. It's all based on automated market making. And as a market maker, we're the world's first market maker in history for diamonds. We make a transparent bid on 16 million varieties of diamonds on a weekly basis. Those bids are on an exchange, uh, the world's first electronic diamond exchange, and we use automated market making to raise those bids so that at the end of each week, we buy a statistically valid sample of all 16 million diamonds. So in, in essence, we buy the same pile of 10,000 diamonds every week and put those into these bars. And every coin or bar is itself a statistical sample of all the diamonds in the world. And that's what makes them all equal.
1: I know you have a uh, trust filed, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, but do you sell these diamond coins directly to, to individual investors? And then again, I'm, I'm really curious on the blockchain side. So like who actually holds the coins if they're traded digitally on the blockchain? Who actually custodies these? How does that process work?
6: Yeah, so it's interesting. We, are, we decided we wanted to be a regulated company and to issue a regulated offering. We knew that the world couldn't just trust us, that the diamond coins are fair, fungible, etc. So we applied for regulatory oversight by the Bermuda Monetary Authority. It took us two years, but they finally approved it. And we had an initial offering in March of 2021 where we were only allowed to sell $25 million worth of these coins. And to be honest, the BMA was concerned that maybe we would steal the money. So that's why they limited that. But with that proceeds, we formed this exchange and did the first automated market making to buy the commodity. The customers are individual investors. Since that initial offering, we've gotten unlimited approval. So we now have approval to sell uh, hundreds of millions of these coins. And for the most part, the clients who are buying these are self-directed investors or hedge funds. We, since the launch, we did get approval from the CFTC via licensees, and we are launching a, a futures contract on the CME. That futures contract will create a national market price, which a lot of your ETF listeners will be familiar with is necessary to price an ETF or is necessary to uh, mark to market the holdings of institutional investors. So we don't expect the Black Rocks and PIMCOs of the world to start building positions until after the futures are launched, which is in about three months.
1: Who actually custodies the coin though? So if I'm an individual investor and I purchase one of these, is the coin sent directly to me? Is it a third party custodian that holds a coin? How does that work? So
6: you have a choice. So we have a global custody partnership with Brinks. And what's interesting about diamond coins is that they're taxable. So maybe not interesting, but maybe, maybe upsetting is the, is the better word. So you can always choose to take delivery of your coin. However, if we ship it to you in New York or California or many other states, we have to collect sales tax. What we've arranged with Brinks is we had to actually invest together and build a facility in Delaware where there's no sales tax. So about 99% of our clients have their coins delivered in their name to Brinks in Delaware.
1: And then in terms of the, I I keep mentioning this blockchain component. So just help me understand the timing with the physical coin and the digital token. So let's say I take ownership of one of the coins and then I ultimately transfer it to a custodian because I want to sell it. What happens with a digital token?
6: Well, so the digital token is, is a major breakthrough. First of all, inside every coin, you have the eight or nine diamonds that are always a fungible set. But inside the coin, there's also a wireless computer chip. So the token is actually inside the coin with the diamonds. It's on that chip, and the token can never be removed. What you have in your personal wallet, for example, your blockchain wallet, is the key. So when you buy the commodity, the coin is delivered to Brinks. The key is held by you, or we can hold it at a digital custodian for institutional investors, for example. We have partnerships with Anchorage and BitGo, for example. And while that coin, physical coin, is sitting at Brinks, you can trade that key on an exchange, and whoever owns that key owns the commodity. We have the world's only regulator license for a commodity token, which means whoever owns that token has regulator-approved settlement of the physical commodity. That token can be owned by the futures contract, or it can be owned by the ETF custodian.
1: Okay, so in terms of your efforts to bring a physical diamond ETF to market, I want to make sure I have this right. As I understand it, there is a trust filed, and it sounds like the structure of this trust is very similar to the grayscale Bitcoin trust, which listeners are going to be familiar with, ticker GBTC. That trust is backed by actual Bitcoin. The shares are traded over the counter. Uh, It's available to accredited investors. There's a lockup period. Is that a fair comparison for what you're initially trying to do with a trust?
6: Well, So we're launching two things. One, we are launching a private fund, which is very much like the GBTC trust. Mm -hmm. GBTC cannot be traded on an exchange. And when you have an ETF in the US, you have to have an authorized participant that allows daily creation and redemption of the shares. GBTC shares cannot be redeemed. You can't sell them and 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 sell the bitcoin under them. So what we long, what we filed with the SEC is a trust that has an authorized participant for, to allow the daily creation and redemption of the shares. And that's a filing we filed with the um, in partnership with the New York Stock Exchange which has allocated the ticker DIAM for that ETF if and when it's approved by the SEC. However, that does require the futures contracts to be live, to use those as the national market price. We're actually going to be launching an ETF in Canada much sooner than the U.S.
1: ETF. Okay, so just to be clear, though, this the filing out there is a traditional ETF, then, in terms of the structure? Correct. Okay.
6: That's that's correct, with an authorized participant and a and, uh, Uh, market makers etc
1: can you talk a little bit more about the regulatory side of the equation here and i'm certainly not a a diamond market expert but i'm I'm curious and i'll stick with the uh, the bitcoin analogy i'm sure you're aware of the challenges grayscale and everyone else has had trying to bring a spot bitcoin etf to market how does the sec view the diamond market just in terms of the overall regulatory framework in place are are, are they comfortable with it are they still in the process of getting there what's their general view well, we
6: our regulators include both the SEC and the CFTC, mm-hmm. and we actually sp- have spent a lot more time with the CFTC because our futures are much nearer to being uh, live. And number one, they're delighted because the diamond industry is a very large supply chain—you know, thirty, forty, fifty billion dollars a year—that has always been out of reach to regulators. So. Because of our bidding and our exchange are both regulated and transparent, we're shining sunlight into the global diamond industry. All of the members of our exchange go through KYC and AML. They sign agreements for no child labor, for example. So we're very much cleaning up the entire diamond industry, but we're also creating transparency and liquidity. And that's one thing that's very much cherished by regulators, is a fair and transparent market. So as we bring diamonds into the modern age, basically, of exchange-based trading and regulatory oversight, we believe that it becomes a much more viable asset. And it started at the very beginning when we made the commodity. We insisted on having regulatory oversight from the moment we bid on the diamond until the commodity itself is delivered to the investor. Our offerings are regulated, and all of our activities are actually audited by Deloitte. So they report to our regulator to confirm that everything's been fair, transparent, and consistent with our approvals.
1: So obviously you have some optimism around the the prospects for a physical diamond ETF. I guess just based on everything that you said, I mean, are you comfortable offering any sort of time frame? And I, I know it's tough reading the tea leaves at the SEC, but are we talking six months, a year, three years, five years? I mean, do you have any sense in terms of when we could actually see a physical diamond ETF on the market?
6: So the, our challenge, first of all, the SEC, we're, the diamond ETF is is not comparable to a Bitcoin ETF at all because there's a physical asset. Mm-hmm. It's It's like a gold bar. So if the if the diamond bar and coin are delivered to the custodian like JP Morgan that that gives a tremendous amount of comfort. The only question for the SEC is the valuation of those diamond commodities. And they don't accept a price discovery on a digital exchange like a Coinbase or a Binance. That's not acceptable to the SEC as a national market price. Once we have a price on the CME for the futures, that's more acceptable, but then the question is what's the volume? Is there enough depth of liquidity that there's not gonna be any market manipulation in in that futures pricing, and therefore the ability to use that for the ETF? So my expectation for a US-based ETF I would think it's 18 months to two years, honestly. And it really depends on the, the depth of liquidity in the futures. However, if your listeners are familiar, in Canada, there's a slightly different structure for ETFs. And the model that we're basing our ETF in Toronto on is the Sprott ETFs. And you'll know that there's a physical gold, a physical silver, a platinum and palladium, and most recently, a uranium ETF offered by Sprott. And these are funds that we can manage the delivery, and you do not have an authorized participant, and you have a monthly creation and redemption. That, we believe, can be approved this year. In fact, we think that'll be launched by the summer.
1: Well, Cormac, we're going to have to leave it there. I've got to tell you, this is truly fascinating stuff. I can't wait to see how this all plays out. I certainly wish you the best of luck in this endeavor. We'd love to see a physical diamond ETF trading in the U.S. market. But thank you for joining me. Really enjoyed this.
6: Thank you, Nate. Pleasure to speak with you.
1: That was Cormac Kinney, founder and CEO of Diamond Standard Trust. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci or you can send comments through etfprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Vanguard's Rich Powers. We'll cover a bunch of different ETF topics and also discuss the growth of their ETF lineup. And then Asha Hunt, founder of Kelly Hunt, will provide a behind-the-scenes look at the legal and regulatory side of ETFs. Until then, have a great week, everyone.